3: find others on itunes
2: all right yeah
3: hey it's john here the podcast hasn't technically started yet it'll be long in a minute i promise but before we get going i just wanted to basically ask you all for a favor you're all very nice people you've all been listening to us uh enthusiastically i hope so so now i want something in return i'm not going to ask for money don't worry what i would like though is if you had five minutes to give us a nice review on itunes and to tell your friends because we'd like to get more people listening to this and we think you're the best people to help us do that. So, go on. Be nice. Do us a favour. Anyway, that's the public service announcement over. I now return you to your normal podcast service.
2: This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand
4: Street. Mind-like. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Barbara.
3: And I'm John. And this week we're talking about the sense of a place... I also think the meaning of particular places can, can change. So one of the writers, of whom I'm a huge fan, is Douglas Adams. He makes a lot of jokes about Islington in
1: those books. But what he means is, you know, Islington is a bit of a dump where I happen to live. Also, you know, we have a, a subway network here. It's the third oldest in the world, and it does serve the side in the West Ends.
5: This was the one in which there was a tube train packed with explosives, right?
3: I don't really remember anything but the tube stuff. How can you... I'm very on
5: brand. <laughs> right.
4: A couple of years ago, I first heard a reference to Paris syndrome, which, if you look up the definition of, sounds like it's probably quite xenophobic and almost definitely not real. uh, Because (laughs) it's. um, You're really selling this one. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, it's a great start, isn't it? Um, It's basically a syndrome which allegedly affects specifically, usually Japanese, sometimes Chinese tourists who go to Paris and experience basically a psychological meltdown because Paris isn't as great as they expected it to be. So obviously I was kind of fairly sceptical about this and I wanted to do a piece about it, but to my shock what I found is that it seems like this is actually a thing. So the BBC has reported on it before, so in 2006 they reckoned that 12 Japanese people were diagnosed with this condition in a single summer and that they had a full psychiatric breakdown as a result of the fact that they had this idealised vision of this cultural city with beautiful women beautiful streets, and in fact They got there, and there are some really funny quotes about kind of dirty roads, rude people. Um,
3: That that doesn't sound like the French. No,
4: no, well, no, amazing, isn't it? So they experience these kind of horrible psychological symptoms. But I'm still amazed that this is is a real effect. But when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. I think that, I mean, Paris is perhaps the best example where we just have this bizarre, idealised image. I mean, after the Parisian attacks, there were kind of all these pieces are talking about how can this happen in the land of baguettes and wine? And you're like, well, this is just a normal European city at the end of the day.
3: That's interesting because I often sort of see London on TV and film and think, God, that looks like such an amazing place. I'd like to go there. One day. It sounds like a ridiculous thing when you start saying it out loud. It's quite ridiculous in my head, actually. But, but you know, the, rich, the, the London of Richard Curtis films... Or the London that something like uh, there's a, a program was we're into as a kick called This Life is set in, is not the one I actually live in, and it's really difficult to put my mm. finger on what, or, or what the difference is between my perception based on on cultural representations of London, and the actual city itself. To what extent do you think our ideas of of different places come not from the places themselves, but from the kind of cultural output which which tries to describe them?
4: Well, I think this probably sounds very pretentious, but we all humans love narrative. That's how our brains work. And if someone gives us this picture of somewhere which fits together, everything has this kind of this sort of visual identity which matches up. I mean, even Richard Curtis, they're not arty films, but still there's you can see in your head the kind of the roads and the markets and the bookshops. And those are the things he chooses to show. So I think that it is, it's easy to buy into that, even when you know how wrong it is, really. I mean, there's kind of real historical precedent for this. It used to be called Florence Syndrome, this idea that you had, because, I mean, during the Renaissance, these European cities were held up as beacons of where all the culture was happening. But if you went there, they'd obviously have back alleys and rubbish like everywhere else. Mm. Uh, but we kind of love this idea of this, uh, this place with a single identity.
3: Yeah, I suppose the London we get in in cultural representations of it tends to be it's the touristy bits It's these kind of nice georgian houses it's kind of relatively clean streets and you know flower cellars and that kind of thing and the real london is you know it's it's choked with buses spewing out pollution and and we're all living on council estates because we can't afford to live in those great big nice georgian houses I suppose we have that with someone like New York as well, where our kind of vision of New York is, you know, it's Manhattan, it's skyscrapers, it's sort of glamorous bars from, like, Sex and the City or whatever. It's kind of high, high finance. And, you know, the real New York is like that, but it isn't just like that. It's also... It's also got all the everyday stuff, like, you know, the Starbucks in every corner and like traffic jams and uh and, and the outer boroughs, bins. most of which you yeah.
4: wouldn't see uh, on, I mean, there, you'd see Brooklyn maybe, but the fact that most people don't live in the bits you see yeah. on none, TV and film. Yeah,
3: none, none of the people I know who've lived in New York lived in lower Manhattan. They don't live in Greenwich <laughs> Village <laughs> like basically. they do in Friends. They live sort of way out in Queens or something.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, people always say this about uh, the representation of people in culture, that you don't have in films you don't have people coughing or sneezing or sitting around or changing their clothes or going to the toilet but i think there's an equivalent with cities where you you don't show the boring mundane bits you show the kind of the really exciting bits and also that it's, it's self-perpetuating isn't it i mean if you are doing a film about manhattan you now show a certain bit of the skyline which has kind of become just like a trope really Whereas, obviously, you're not going to show like, a shot of some bins um, to, to set the scene. Or the sewers. Yeah. I mean, like, well, I mean they could. That'd be quite cool. But yeah. you can see bit, why they don't.
3: It'd be a very different film, I think. I mean, like if, if, if Woody Allen's Manhattan had started with a shot of the sewers and, you know, Rhapsody in Blue over the top, it would have been... Anyway. Yeah. So, that's what we're going to talk about this episode. We're going to talk to a number of our colleagues from the New Statesman team about how places and cities are represented in, in cultural output, in books and TV and films. First off, we're going to do literature.
2: This is a Brooklyn-bound A-Express train. The next stop is Dykeman Street. This is a 125th Street bound A express train. The next stop is 59th Street, Columbus Circle.
6: My name is Stephanie Boland. I work at the New Statesman as a digital assistant and I'm also, in my other life, a PhD student and academic in English literature.
3: Okay, so there are are some works of literature in which place is incredibly important. Dickens does a lot of stuff around uh, 19th century London or, you know... um, Jane Eyre is very consciously set in the north of England and that kind of feeds into it but there are other great works of literature where that doesn't really matter like a lot of Shakespeare it's just like we'll we'll say it's set in Verona and give everyone an Italian name but it's just a generic (laughs) foreign place so like how important do you think a sense of place is in literature
6: I mean, my immediate response to that would be there's, a, there's the sense of place, which you could argue is still what's going on with Shakespeare when he decides he just wants to invoke this kind of exoticism of the foreign. And then there's specific places itself, um, which is maybe what you're getting with Dickens' London or Joyce's Dublin. Um, I know you take some of those Dickens novels, you definitely take something like Ulysses, and you go, you could not set that in any other city. But whether that means it has a stronger sense of place then say Cervantes who says explicitly in Don Quixote a place I do not care to remember but the sense of it being rooted in that time and that you know European Spanish geography is still very strong so there's maybe two slightly different questions at work there. Sorry I know that's a typical academics answer.
4: (laughs) Yeah I think I agree I think that, um, that some of the most evocative things and places within literature are often made up ones but that it's always in relation to real places anyway. Like, I think a good example of this is much more childish than the ones you have mentioned, but in Philip Pullman's um, Northern Lights series, there's an element which is based in Oxford, but a kind of fantastical fake Oxford. There's bits that are in our world and then the fake world and then all these kind of other Mm. places, but they're kind of, you get what he means by them, even if they're not kind of real, they don't have real names. But I guess there's quite a lot of that anyway. There's quite a lot of, thinly veiled references to places in books where the author perhaps doesn't name it specifically maybe for fear of alienating people or because they want to make it clear that it's kind of fiction. Um, But they still are referring to a real place.
6: Yeah, I think that's true. Although there's interesting examples as well where people refer to one place and it's clearly... I mean, Virginia Woolf is the famous example where To the Lighthouse is meant to be in Scotland but it's so clearly the coast of of Cornwall. Depiction of kind of fictional landscapes in fictional... Text is so interesting because I think, especially for younger readers, like you say, you can become so attached to, you know, the place of Hogwarts, which is not
4: a real place, but people feel like they know and have yeah. inhabited. But I think that's also why sometimes authors do resist rooting something in a very specific, very realistic place because they know. I mean, we get readers who say, "Why are you talking about London? I can't always re- can't relate to London because I don't live there." And that's kind of a slightly <laughs> basic uh, interpretation. But not, I think it, oh, people, the are people are people the are conscious hay-mail. of that. I think. Especially if you're writing something that you want to appeal to kind of a really wide Mm. range of people. But I
3: I also think the meaning of particular places can can change. So one of the writers of whom I'm a huge fan is Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. He makes a lot of jokes about Islington in those books. Um, (laughs) But what he means is, you know, Islington is a bit of a dump where I happen to live. 30, 40 years on, the sort of social media of Islington has totally changed, and it's now this sort of posh bit of London, and it reads like he's kind of mocking sort of, you know, rich mm. liberals, basically. It just reads mm. completely differently to the way he intended them, but it still works as a joke.
6: And the way that works relatively, um, this is a slightly niche point, but I know some people who are involved in translating texts, and they go, for instance, I know somebody who's translated Joyce, and they go, when when you make a reference to England in Ulysses, if you're translating into Polish do you change that to Russia because the relative relationship between those two places is mm. perhaps comparable or do you leave it a bit incomprehensible so the way you engage with those texts is so based on where you're from and what you know and I know in the case of Shakespeare I go I bet there's something about Vienna in Italians that I just don't know about Okay, yeah. okay let's, yeah.
3: I'd, I'd like to talk about Shakespeare a bit partly because it's you know he's probably one of the reference points people are most likely to get um, but partly because I'm curious about this one of the Shakespeare plays I know best is Measure for Measure, which is ostensibly set in Vienna, which is, you know, obviously German speaking, but everyone has an Italian name. It's all like it's Angelo and Isabella. And you kind of wonder, like, did he literally think it was like, was he just using it as, as an avatar for, you know, a foreign city where they do things differently?
1: Mm.
3: Or, you know, is, is that deliberate, really, do we think?
6: I don't. I have a horrible feeling that I'll pronounce a theory on this. Go on Wikipedia, and it will say, you know, Italians in Vienna, because that signified this to a early modern. I mean, I'm thinking of something like um, the wood near Athens in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Where does it really matter that it's near Athens? No. Is there something being signified by the fact it's Athens? It's near. Yes, probably, but I'm not an early modernist, so I kind of want to withhold
4: judgment on this one.
6: See, this
3: is yeah. you being an academic I'm problem. Sorry, I, I I'm just, sorry, i just cheerfully say stuff that's wrong, and, you know, we'll deal with that later.
4: But I think that you can't dismiss the play stuff, especially since he uses it in the names of plays quite mm. a bit. So I don't think you call something the two gentlemen of Verona and you're just saying, Ah, oh, Verona, somewhere in Europe, somewhere. But I think it's probably, as you gestured to the Islington thing, those reference points change so rapidly mm. and would have been so specialised. Well, to, so
3: isn't Romeo and Juliet set in Verona as well? So it Yeah, it is, yeah. And then, again, a,
4: within the first line of that play, that's referenced. Mm-hmm. So there obviously is something there, but I think, I mean, maybe the reason that some authors avoid this stuff is that these references are so, so kind of specialised. I recently read the Elena Ferrante series mm-hmm. and I was like, I know there's huge amounts about Naples that I'm just not getting at all. But if you live there, <laughs> this would be the full this should be a complete evocations yeah. of like the class of certain areas or like, so even within the kind of city landscape, the... the those specific areas you reference could mean huge amounts to some people and nothing to others.
6: And this is very interesting in the case of Shakespeare because I know the Globe have been doing the Globe to Globe series for quite a while now where they um, have international theatre companies perform Shakespeare plays. The one people tend to know best is the Polish Macbeth because it's the the one that really traumatised everyone and had school parties leaving in floods of tears and things. But they've done kind of... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was bleak. It's like worse than Titus. But they've got kind of, um, you know, Gujarati Shakespeare and Eastern European Shakespeare. And it does work. And often those things which have, we've become slightly unmoored from those references, they find new purchase in setting them in another culture
3: I mean Shakespeare this is where you either tell me I'm wrong or I just gleefully go ahead being wrong and then we find out later when we get letters (laughs) but my I I have a feeling that Shakespeare was performed in translation from quite early on like from like the 18th century onwards I've got an idea there were were I would not be
6: surprised but again it's not it's not my wheelhouse but
3: so I mean I kind of wonder if is there something about his plays that does make them translatable in that way and, and is that related to the fact that often the sense of place is a bit kind of hazy? It's not,
4: yeah. mm. Mm. and the fact it often isn't England. In fact, that maybe in what he's actually doing is he's divorcing it enough from anything that's immediately recognisable that it sort mm. of does transfer to everyone in a in a strange sort of way. I mean, obviously, the history plays are an exception <laughs> to that.
3: Um, well, I mean, the history play that gets by far the most productions, I think, is Richard the Third. The theme it adapts it's it's on is kind of something that's kind of much more more universal. I think it's mm. not about the specifics of English history like the Wars of the Roses. It's about burning ambition, isn't it? So
6: yeah, no, no, no. I think, but it's a good point about kind of universality and character. And yeah, I'd, I'd give you a good grade on that. <laughs> okay, well, I, an I, undergraduate. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I, I I do technically have an English degree. You know, <laughs> so just, yeah. kind of think of like a couple of authors that do really big things with place where it's like incredibly important if you wanted to sort of find out about a particular place you would read books by this author i've i've got one that i'm reading at the moment i'm reading a book called hard revolution by uh, a, a u.s crime writer called george pelicanos who's you know washington dc is one of his subjects so he kind of writes about it as kind of a fictional space in the way that dickens wrote about 19th century london
4: Yeah, I would say actually Donna Tartt because what's quite striking about her books is they're all set in completely different kind of places and kind of conceptual places as well. So in one it's kind of within a liberal arts college, which is kind of thinly veiled, meant to be the one that she attended. Um, And then another is set in the deep south and has kind of the most evocative (laughs) descriptions of that kind of place and that way of life that I can really remember. And then her most recent book is kind of set in various places in Europe. But I think she does a really good job of kind of creating the atmosphere of those places and really like locating the story within them.
3: Stephanie, who would you read to get a sense of a particular place?
4: I think a particular place in a particular time, I'd recommend
6: certain authors. So I've done a lot of work on East End literature and there's definitely kind of generations of Jewish writers there. Well, I guess the obvious one, which I know I've mentioned a couple of times already, is, is Joyce's Ulysses. I know it's, it's something of a, a glib to say, um, as Joyce did, that you can reconstruct the city from reading that book. But actually, the level of detail it presents and how intricately the t- topography works, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if you couldn't map it out.
3: There's an excellent joke in a Tom Stoppard play called Travesties that... Uh, the, to write Ulysses James Joyce went into a, a library and got out two books which were Homer's Odyssey and the Dublin Street Directory for <laughs> 1904.
6: I know I know. he used to at some points get kind of several newspapers a day so he could pin down news items in the right addresses and things like that. But if, even then there are kind of errors in it and you have to go is that a deliberate error that's saying something or is it not? So if you become a and this is maybe a broader point, if you become kind of fanatical about representation of place, naming their names um, in this room, then (laughs) inevitably you're going to get tripped up at some point.
3: Also, he did leave Dublin in 1904, didn't he? He was always kind of writing about this Dublin of his his past rather than...
6: Yeah, rather than current day. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. he went back a handful of times. Yeah. But the number of authors who write about places where they're not or where they grew up and aren't anymore is also interesting. You think of something like To the Lighthouse, where Cornwall is
4: Virginia Woolf's childhood yeah. landscape. And it seems very common among Irish authors as well, I suppose, because you, you... have a diaspora, don't you? Yeah, yeah. and then yeah. it's this kind of mythical place of your... Of memories, your yeah. yeah. So
3: is that what people are writing about, really? They're not so much writing about a place as they are about their youth?
4: Well, or just their, their idea of a place, which, again, is why I actually think it's cleverer to try and mask what the place is a bit, because you don't actually gain that much from knowing... It's meant to be London because it's really it's as Dickens's as London. It's not mm. kind of a, a proper map that someone put
6: together. And it's interesting. A few years ago now, there was kind of a boom of novels set in um, what what some theorists call kind of non-places. So you set your book in an airport or in a train station or another kind of deliberately interstitial, non-rooted space. Um, brief encounter is the, the classic example of someone doing that but there are you know novels set entirely within an airport lounge and things like that
3: but even then surely brief encounter is very specific it's too. still it, very specific it's, yeah you know, it's a London commuter town in yeah the, in the mid 20th century yeah
6: least. it's it's yeah yeah so ultimately we have no conclusions about placing books other than that it's interesting sometimes confusing and sometimes good so
3: there you go you some <laughs> books okay.
2: This is a Euclid Avenue-bound F train via the A line. The next stop is Nostrand Avenue. This is a Brooklyn-bound F train via the B line. The next stop is Grand Street.
3: So, to talk about the sense of place and geography in TV and film, I'm joined by two people who are guaranteed to have opinions on pretty much anything they're told to. The hosts of our sister podcast, the New Statesman podcast, Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush. Hello. Hello. So, people do tend to get annoyed when there is a problem with the geography as laid out in a particular TV or TV show or film. So, when you
5: say people, John, do you mean you?
3: I mean me and people like me on the internet of whom there are fr- frankly <laughs> yeah, terrifying number. number, but many of whom read Citymetric. There was this episode of popular BBC drama Sherlock a couple of years ago in which... The biggest mystery was how the tube works in the Sherlock universe, because you can get on the district line and come off the northern line station without changing trains. This
5: was the one in which there was a tube train packed with explosives, right?
3: I don't really remember anything but the tube stuff. How can you? I'm very think? on brand.
5: <laughs> yeah, so they, it was Martin all about Freeman, there being secret, uh, secret tube stations on the yeah. tube, which is true, right? And is a quite a cool thing that like, I like. I used to live up um, Holloway Road, and there's a there's a whole Highbury station entrance there, or next to the on the Strand next to King's College, there is the the entrance hall to what is an old tube station, To old which that, that yeah. is no, no longer there. Was, yeah, which was used during the Blitz, right? And that's, mm. so that uh, that is a kind of quite a cool premise that there are sort of things you walk past every day. And Uh, then another, um, Sherlock, had one of those... In fact, I I think they might have been reading City Metric because didn't you do a piece on all those fake houses that are just a frontage and then the railway line goes behind them?
3: Oh, everyone's done that piece. I wouldn't like to pretend it's an exclusive. But
5: what I'm saying is the next series of Sherlock is probably going to be very angry about the Garden Bridge.
3: Oh, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, it'll just be
5: like Moriarty will come back as a, plot, a pot plant seller on the garden bridge.
3: The biggest mystery is how we're going to solve this damn housing crisis. It'll be like that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, people do get very worked up about this. Like there was, there was a, a frankly frightening amount of coverage of the fact that the tube doesn't work properly in Sherlock. Um, but there's also why, frankly why?
5: frightening amount of courage about when like people in Downton Abbey got really overexcited about like there was all oh, there was an Evian bottle on the mantelpiece once. Or but, I get very excited when I watch historical dramas and I go, <laughs> those cuffs are completely wrong for seventeen forty. But, but okay. it's I the asked, pleasure I, of pedantry, isn't it? But I,
3: I asked Twitter for an example, some examples of this earlier and like there were lots of responses, but one of the ones that probably about 10 different people suggested was the Kevin Costner film, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, in which Robin Hood lands at Dover, nips up to Hadrian's Wall and ends up in Nottingham in the space of about what's clearly like an hour-long awesome. journey. There's I another big problem. Problem. And people, and people are still irks,
5: angry
0: so. about this okay. 20 years later. Also, there's
5: the problem that Morgan Freeman is apparently North African. Like, he's supposed to be Algerian, isn't he? Which is also a bit... But, a I mean, threshold. also, this is,
0: we're, we're talking about a film with witchcraft in it, right? In which, like, there's that witch advising Alan Rickman, who is obviously the main reason to watch what is actually an awesome film, and anyone who says otherwise should just go down. But it doesn't,
5: for, for the plot of Robin Hood, Prince of The to Work, it doesn't necessarily follow that the witch has to be any good at witching, just that, that the Sheriff Nottingham believes about the painted man and all this stuff. But her predictions
0: come true, right down to the fact the painted man does kill her. Sorry, spoiler alert. (laughs) I mean, I I just find these these kind of complaints about, like, oh, oh, it only took an hour. I mean,. Uh, they all ought to have rotting teeth. I mean, the, the biggest problem I have with Sherlock is the fact that show should have been killed off a long time oh, ago. I mean, it has minutes. not just only jumped the shark, it has looped back around, taken another look, and jumped the shark again.
5: It that- is the shark. There's a bit in uh, the tra- first track, maybe the first or second Transformers, but I can't remember how many I foolishly went to see before realising that it was just like machinery moving in close-up, where they go from the pyramids, and they, they go over the hill from the pyramids, and they're in Petra. And you're like, literally, like, as if they were just, like, next to each other. That, But then, Stephen, I know you you give this very short shrift, but isn't it the case that it's just... There are some areas that are allowable, right? Because, only yeah, obviously, if you're a, an expert on the 16th century, then this is going to be, you know, it's going to be upsetting to you, even to watch the BBC's Wolfhorn, which they put a huge amount of time and money. But when people just do it and there's a sense... It, it too often speaks of a, a production that doesn't really care... I think
0: truthiness is a fairly important quality, as it were. So the Evian bottle is a problem because everyone knows there were no Evian bottles. This is the the Evian bottle on the uh, mantelpiece in Downton Downton Abbey. Abbey. Um, So, I mean, for example, to take Sliding Doors, I think probably one of the best films on on or about public transport. Um,
5: (laughs) What? It's a brilliant, beautiful film. If you find it funny, no, I just I was trying to think of what other films are in the category about or on public transport. The Taking of
3: Pelham One Two Three. The th- Thor 2, The Dark World.
5: That um, one with Jake Speed. Gyllenhaal where he keeps he keeps going back Source in code, time. Source Code,
0: another brilliant yeah. film on public transport. Um, Speed 2. Speed 2. Oh,
5: um, oh Death Train. Yeah, that's probably, got like Pierce Brosnan in it. I think it may have been directed by Michael yeah. Winner.
3: The Great Train Robbery.
5: Is that a film more There a is thing a film called
3: The Great... C- I mean, it's both. Brief Encounter.
5: What about Bad, that br- br- one in the f- tunnel with Sylvester Stallone or Steven Seagal? It's hard to say which one at that point that was about you'd love that John it's about public highway maintenance breaking down because of terrorists
3: there is also um, I mean arguably you could point to the entirety of uh, Danish Swedish co-production The Bridge is about uh, transport infrastructure that bit
5: in the Batman film with the boats those
0: aren't public
3: transport can
0: anyone one of remember one what of point the Stephen was making? One of them is
5: the prison one, one of them filled with commuters, essentially.
0: So sliding doors, yeah, her commute doesn't really make any sense, because she is meeting him on the Waterloo and City, and the flat where you're like, wow, property prices in London have changed since the 90s, because they're clearly struggling, but they can live in this amazing house. Yeah, that that doesn't make sense. But who cares? the The lighting is beautiful. You know, John Hanna is beautiful. Gwyneth Paltrow is beautiful. It's
3: an amazing movie. Okay, but what if it? What if it pulls you out the fiction? Because sometimes it's just unnecessary. So there is an episode of Doctor Who which I found particularly annoying. Bear with me, in which the Doctor goes by scooter from the, the New Change Shopping Centre to the Shard via Waterloo Bridge, which is crazy. Now I don't care. Okay, this but happening- then he
5: drives the scooter. Up the shard vertically, John. But
3: I mean that episode. If not he's very- going to do that, why would he go two miles out of his way to get <laughs> to the skyscraper when he's got the whole challenge ahead? Is he just psyching himself up? But what I'm saying is, like in this show, which is fundamentally about you know an, an alien with two hearts who can change his appearance and travel in time, that was the thing that pulled me out the fiction.
5: That's because you're a transport nerd. This is the thing: is is it? It's about what you are nerdy about, right? Almost everybody who watched that will not have cared. And it doesn't. But it is also about suspension suspension. something which
0: is good enough. Will you, has enough goodwill. I, I remember being pulled out of that episode, but that was because that episode wasn't good enough for me to be willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So Thor, 2, Yes, the Jubilee line doesn't make sense, but it's a fun movie. He, you know, like you've got, got, a got hammer. You, you've got like you've enough. got Thor on the underground. Yeah, that that is just in of itself quite.
5: I think that's true because the other Doctor Who episode you could talk about that is the one where, the Christmas one where Matt Smith gets stranded on the planet that is like dark for years on end and you're like, how does the agriculture work? And the only reason I was asking how the agriculture worked was because that was an extraordinarily dull episode. You know, I could have done, you know, could like run around a quarry, a kind of cool, crazy alien, bit of suspense, bit of horror, would have been able to kind of get over the fact that I think when you're nitpicking, that's usually a sign that the part of your brain that would be enjoying the narrative has kind of switched off
3: I I don't even know who I am anymore but I'm going to move the conversation on from Doctor Who Uh wow you've gone mainstream I have Judas what what, what are the single worst examples of this of this kind of cop up
5: I can't think of one about geography, but I can think of one related to history, which is more my area, because I didn't even do geography GCSE. There's uh, a series which is currently on Netflix called Rain, which is supposed to be set at the court of Catherine de' Medici and various other people but they've done things like they've invented a completely new bastard son for the king which is kind of I mean so okay so the Tudors had a bit of an issue right which is the early Henry the 8th of England very sexy very live getting through wives however becomes a bit of a porker in later seasons but they couldn't really get Jonathan Reese Mayers into a fat suit because it's not really what you want so I kind of see I would let that one go right that you would you would start with a premise and then you just kind of have to wibble it Rain, on the other hand is tonto from the start you just think why have you bothered making historical drama if you if you hate history you actually actively hate history the costumes look like they're sort of some five iterations of terrible bridesmaids wear one of those things like if you're going to try and give a series a sense of place that's why i think sherlock's an interesting example Sherlock is a lot about modern London, right? It has those really iconic tilt-shifted graphics at the start. It's supposed to feel the texture of a modern city, you know. That's Partly it's about 21st century London and this sort of atomised society, and that's what's supposed to be new about it. So I think that's why also you hold it to a slightly higher standard. And the same thing with historical dramas is I think, you know, you could just make some crazy fancy bloop. Like, you make Game of Thrones if you just wanted to explore those themes, right? Why make history if you don't care about history? And why make geography if you don't care about geography?
3: What about a slightly different point, but the West Wing had a habit of inventing countries so that President Barley could assassinate their leaders or whatever it was, presumably because they didn't want to to actually spark a war with Iran. But by don't they actually have a, go at, do they have a go at
5: Saudi Arabia by name in the, you know, they beat women? Yeah, they, so. they
3: do. It's a bit sort of hazy where the line is between things that are okay to say about rural countries and things that aren't.
0: And he does fixed, uh, fix Middle East. He peace. fixes the actual Middle East, <sighs> yeah. Um, I mean,
5: If only they'd let Ed Miliband be Ed Miliband, eh, Stephen?
0: <sighs> I am, you know, supremely unbothered by, by transport errors in films or, or television. I think where they go wrong, so why I think Sherlock is a problem is... The promise of Sherlock should be that it's about a clever person who solves crimes. And then when the crimes are worked out, you should have a sense of, ah, oh, oh, right, okay, that is clever. But actually, Sherlock's not clever. He's just rude and talks quickly. Mm-hmm. Most of the twists you can't work out you know, for yourself, they're, they're pulled from the ether. Right down to the fact that in that one, knowing the tube map does not help you solve the plot. I think that's the thing so- is you do
5: feel that sort of sense of cheating. The best ones are, like in a good, really great, that's why Agatha Christie is a genius, is that you, co- you You had all the information and you could have sold it yourself. It's just you were too much enjoying the narrative barrelling you along that you didn't bother to stop and, and think about it. Yeah. Whereas going, well, actually, he all had a secret twin all along is a bit of a, you know... That's the, that's the prestige, actually. Okay. Spoiler.
3: OK, I'm going to draw this to a close with, with two particularly good examples I found while, while researching this earlier. One is the 2003 movie Reign of Fire, which is a post-apocalyptic movie in which dragons conquer the world. Originally had the dragons living in some mountains in Norfolk, the flattest county in England which got a lot of people quite angry, so they moved them. What, did they it, put
5: them in the sort of Brecon beacons? And... I
3: think they moved them to Northumbria, because it sounds a bit like Norfolk. Uh-huh. Um, but originally they were saying, look, 200 million people are going to see this film. Um, only like 20 of them live in Norfolk, so we don't... <laughs> I, think, I think they were slightly out on both figures, actually. Um, the other one was that people pointed me to the IMDB entry for Patriot Games, which has like a whole section of user-generated geographical areas, my favourite of which reads... Dennis Cooley is shown boarding a ferry in Woolwich, which takes him to Libya. The Woolwich ferry only travels across the Thames.
5: I'd love it if he got the Emirates airline and then he's he's seen stepping up in Mogadishu. Hang on a minute, they've really extended this.
3: Now it's the part of the show where we get someone out there in the big wide world to tell us about their city. This week, we're going to Scotland.
1: Hi there, my name's Stephen Bell, I'm 29, and I'm a commercial property analyst currently living in Glasgow. I think Glasgow, all good points and bad points of of city life in Glasgow, um, can, can feed off one main thing, and that would be transport. I currently live in the west end of the city, and work in the city centre. It's a six minute journey um, in terms of the train. So I think for me personally and, and selfishly, I gain from a work life balance um, side of things from that. It doesn't interfere with me getting home in time to enjoy other aspects of city life, you know, restaurants, bars, socialising, things like that. There's no real need for me to rush home, beat the traffic. I think also, you know, we have a, a, a subway network here, as basic as it is, the third oldest in the world, and it does serve the south side in the West End, again, where I am, selfishly, very well. Every three or four minutes you can get the subway. And again, even even at weekends, there's options there. You know, it's you can get the train, you can walk if you, if if the weather permits. Got the, the the subway network there, and of course, the East End offers the bus services, which isn't great. It's there, it does exist. I think the good that comes from all of that certainly allows people in Glasgow to to enjoy the, the benefits of city life. Personally, I um, I grew up down the west coast of Scotland. Where everything shuts at half past five, so for the first year of university, you know, it was it was getting home before everything closed, except a couple of bars. Um, again, the benefit of city life, especially in Glasgow, and, and again in the West Ends of the city, you know, you, you enjoy that culture of, of restaurants, bars, and and there's no time limit on life. Essentially, you know, it doesn't stop when you get home from work. I think I think as much as 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 it's good having these options, it, it can feed into a con you you do start criticising a lot more when you see comparisons with other cities, you know, as good as our transport links are, it's it's a nightmare to get to the airport. And you look across at Edinburgh who's who's just obviously introduced the tram service out there um over recent years and you can get out to the to the airport very easily now, for for Glasgow we're still using a, a motorway shuttle bus you know, for a large international airport it's not good enough and you do start comparing with other cities, especially in Europe you know, when you look at cities that utilise the space a lot better for example Paris and, and what they do with, with the Seine um, you know, we have, have the Clyde running through the middle of the city centre essentially and uh, it's not used in any way you know, we've got some nice bridges for photographs but you know, there's no services alongside it. There's no cafes, bars. It could be so much better utilised. Yet we we really do struggle to, to to make the most of that. You know, as good as these options are, you're all, you know, Glasgow especially. You are always looking for that bit more. You know, the subway network. Why doesn't it go out to the east end of the city? You know, why doesn't it pull in more from that side? It would do so much more for tourism. We have big attractions over that side. We should be doing so much more with that.
3: If you want to contribute to this thread, which we, you know, would very much like it if you did that, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, or an email. And all you need to do is to send us a couple of minutes of you talking about the city of your choice. We'd love to hear from you.
4: This week for our Map of the Week, we're looking at what is essentially a fun internet game, which also happens to be a map, um, which kind of fits into our theme in that it shows that what we think of countries isn't necessarily accurate. So... The true size map lets you pick up an outline of a country or even a a region of a country and drop it on top of another one, which basically shows you that Greenland is not very big compared to what we think. India is massive and Europe is basically tiny compared to everywhere else.
3: Yeah, we were just talking about this. The rule of thumb is that most places are much bigger than you think, except for Europe, which is much, much smaller. The reason for all this is uh, that the standard map we're all used to is what's known as the Mercator projection, which basically turns the globe into a cylinder to make it easier to map but that has a weird side effect which is the closer you get to the poles the the more distorted the geography gets so it presents africa which is obviously sits on the equator as as it, it comes across as much smaller than it actually is whereas places close to the poles like europe get stretched and look more important there is a, an actual campaign to, to sort of change from the cater projection to, to a different projection that gives a more realistic sense of relative size, isn't there?
4: Yeah, and actually, to be honest, do using this site almost convinces you of that because what actually happens is you sort of pick up the country, but as you move it across different areas, it grows or shrinks depending on... because it's all relative size, and it is kind of amazing. Like, Texas is the, the size of half of Europe. Which is just, this kind of blows your mind, really, doesn't it?
3: You can't see this, dear listeners, but I can actually see Barbara's mind being blown right now. She <laughs> keeps getting distracted <laughs> by her phone as she does this bit.
4: So Texas is massive, but then you get the whole of the United States, put it on Africa, and it just looks like it's like maybe two and a bit Algeria's. It's, it's, just, it's just crazy.
3: Yeah, so basically the lesson here is that Europe is far less important than we think we are. And maps are rubbish. Maps are rubbish. No, hang on not. maps are great. What are you talking about? You've been listening to Skylines, the Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Roy Ford Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove Trove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show was licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps, and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening.
2: This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the Gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동